Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, after Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah, when he had taken him, bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God promised this calamity against this place, and the Lord has brought it on and done it just as He promised, because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to His voice. Therefore this thing has happened to you. (laughs) Ever have a non-believer call you into conviction? Read on, verse 4. But now, behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along, and I will look after you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. As Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, Go on then. Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah, and stay with him among the people, or or else go anywhere it seems right for you to go. So the captain of the bodyguard gave him a ration and a gift and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Mizpah, to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and stayed with him there among the people who were left in the land. After 40 years of prophetic ministry across five ruling administrations, five different kings in Judah, the last five, the foreboding prophecies of Jeremiah culminated in the catastrophic ruin of the land of Judah. His prophecies collided with the rebellion of the people. The truth of the Word of God was on full display for all to see in the city of Zion. Jerusalem was a smoking rubble. The temple was a smoldering heap. Testimony to the truth of the Word of God. In the aftermath of all of this, Jeremiah weeps and laments. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord determined, he writes, to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained His hand from destroying. And He has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And then Jeremiah writes also, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. I read that and I thought, could Jeremiah be speaking from his own heart? What about Jeremiah now? Was he left without a vision? He had been given a vision 40 years prior and he had spoken that vision for 40 years of the terror and the dread and the breakdown of Judah and what was coming upon them. But now it's all happened. Now we stand in the aftermath and I wonder if as Jeremiah was led in chains along the five mile trek from Jerusalem up to Ramah north of there, I wonder if he thought, what's my point now? What's my purpose? What's my place now, Lord? They took him to the Babylonian deportation center at Ramah. Ramah means high hill. Ramah was the northernmost city in the kingdom or in the land, the tribal land of Benjamin. So it was on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel, which no longer existed, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which now no longer existed. All the exiles were taken to Ramah before they were sent east out to Babylon. From Ramah, 
the deportees would have had a clear view of the smoke billowing up from Jerusalem. Like heavy winter clouds, only it was summertime, the month of Av. And for the deportees heading to Babylon, their last view of Zion would be the smoldering ash and the burning fires. Now, we know something about Jewish life in exile. You can study about it. We will study about it when we get to the book of Daniel. Daniel was exiled in Babylon, one of the first to go. Ezekiel will talk about the exile in Babylon. He prophesied from the land. Esther, the story of Esther takes place in Persia following the exile. So we we have a sense of the history of the Jewish people once they were exiled. But what about those who stayed behind? What about what happened right there in the land of Judah in the aftermath? We know 70 years later they would come back with Ezra. Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, they bring the people back. What about right away there in the land? What was life like in a post or seemingly post-Judaic world? Let me ask, how many of you believe we now live in a post-Christian world? I have used this phrase myself um, because of the way the world looks around us. I have thought in terms of perhaps we have turned a corner. Perhaps we have gone over the hill and now we are headed down the other side. And the the height of the movement of Christianity and the strength of Christianity and the word of Christ in the world, maybe that has has reached its apex and we're now coming down. Perhaps we're in a post-Christian world. Well, if you're tempted to think that way, let me encourage you. This won't be a post-Christian world until the world takes his church home. At that point, it will be a post-church world, but it still won't even be a post-Christian world because people will still come to faith in Jesus. It won't be a post-Christian world until Jesus accomplishes what Jesus has set out to accomplish. We do not live in a post-Christian world. As a matter of fact, Isaiah prophesied just the opposite. Jesus quoting it when He stood up on that day in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61, said, This is the year, the favorable year of the Lord. And He wasn't just talking about that year. He was talking about this age. This is the favorable year of the Lord. This is the time that we can expect God to do great things. This is the Christian era, if you will. The church age. Now, I believe we're at the tail end of it. Which is why I think we're seeing a lot of the negative things. Sometimes it feels post-Christian. We see waffling faith. We see increasing opposition. We see blindness. We see immorality, apathy, contention, and the like. And Jesus promised in Matthew 24.12 that because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But here's the good news. Our hope is not in this culture. It never has been. Our hope is in Christ. And the hope that is in Jesus supersedes all culture of every age. And so as we walk and we live in the favorable year of the Lord, our hope in Christ, understand as Paul said in Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Christ who is our life. Can you say that? Is Christ your life? You turn around to other people and say, man, if there's any one thing that matters to me, Christ is my life. And does that show in the life that you're living? Is that apparent? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There are some things that can be learned from the aftermath of Judah. 
the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 40, 41, 42, 43 take us through what happened in the days, months, and years immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem. And they were tenuous times at first, but then they became turbulent times. And we'll see this. Four consecutive stories this morning. And I think we can pick up some insights along the way. It all begins with the Babylonian captain of the bodyguard, Nebuzaradan, declaring, story number one, Jeremiah's liberty. Jeremiah's liberty. Pick it up in verse 4. Nebuzaradan speaking says, Now, behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along, and I will look after you, or literally, I'll keep my eye on you. I'll look out for you. Nebuchadnezzar charged the captain of his own bodyguard to look out for Jeremiah, the Judean prophet. Wow. Why? Well, for 40 years, Jeremiah had been prophesying the coming of Nebuchadnezzar. So, apparently Nebuchadnezzar thought that was a good thing. So, he has protection should he want it. He can go to Babylon if he would like. But, he says, if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. And verse 5 begins, as Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, well, go on then to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah. Stay with him among the people, or else go anywhere it seems right for you to go. So the captain of the bodyguard gave him a ration and a gift and let him go. He offers him the glory and the protection of Babylon or the pathetic, pitiable, poverty-stricken Judah. Your choice, Jeremiah. Now I want you to think about this. Jeremiah had originally preached to the people, go to Babylon. God's discipline for you is to go into captivity. If you go there, He will take care of you there, but you are going to go there. If you stay here and try and fight, you're going to die. That was the message of Jeremiah. So perhaps, accepting captivity in Babylon, if it was the Lord's will for Judah, perhaps that was His will for Jeremiah. Although Nebuchadnezzar says, you can also stay here if you want to go. And we see in verse 5, Jeremiah was still not going back. What's the point of that? He's indecisive. He's hesitant. Uh, Wow. Imagine a prisoner who's been in chains let out from the jail and standing in front of the gate, not sure what to do with his life. I'm so used to the protection of prison. Yeah, it was bad, but this freedom stuff. Jeremiah is standing there, a free man, not sure what to do. Ever been in that place? Ever been where you're not sure what to do? You have two or three or more directions to go in your life and you begin to pray and say, Lord, I want you to make it clear to me. And all you're getting is, where do you want to go? No, no, Lord, I want you to tell me where to go. And the Lord says, wherever you want, I'll go with you. Now, there are times where God absolutely steps out and says, come on, we're going this way. But I have seen and known in my life and I believe there are times where God will say, what do you want to do? Which direction would you like to go? You make the choice. I'm going to bless you either way. Now, he knows what you're going to choose. He already has that worked out. He's already seen you make that choice. But he allows you the choice. So is it free will or is it predestination? Yes. It's, it works both ways. It depends on your perspective. Talking with Rachel this morning it was great. She was saying, you know, from our perspective, it's free will. From God's perspective, it's predestination because he's already seen it all. Well said. 
You're in that place trying to make a choice. I want you to understand something. Christianity is not constraining. Too many people think that becoming a Christian means becoming constricted or confined or bound up. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17 where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty. Jesus says in John 3 verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Rick, where are you going to be this time next year? I have no idea. Isn't that great? And I'm not worried about it because the Spirit knows. I'm going wherever He wants to go. Well, that sounds constraining. No, it's free. I'm free not to worry about it. I'm free not to stress about it. I am free in Christ Jesus. Jeremiah hesitates. It seems like he's unsure of the direction for a moment, but I think he realizes something. In fact, it's obvious to me that Jeremiah realizes something. This was not a nebulous word from Nebuzaradan. This was a word from the Lord. Jeremiah, you can go to Babylon, or you can stay right here, or you can go live at Mizpah with Gedaliah. You're free to do whatever you want to do. And Jeremiah recognizes it as a word from the Lord. What makes you think that? Verse 1 opens up. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Well, that's rather obvious. Kind of blatant, wouldn't you think? Well, not, not according to the scholars. They really debate this one. The commentary writers. And I understand the commentarians because they're common. And so they don't always get it right. But this word is from the Lord. Jeremiah makes that very clear. Now, the scholars who struggle with this, they say, well, Nebuzaradan was a pagan, not a prophet. How could this be a word from the Lord? God can't speak through a babbling Babylonian. Ever heard the story of Balaam and his donkey? Numbers chapter 22. If you haven't heard it, read it. The donkey talks. Because he's the only one smart enough to figure out there's an angel of the Lord in the path. The donkey. God gives the donkey language. If He can give a donkey language, He can speak through me. In fact, He can speak through anyone. If He can speak to Moses through a bush that burns but doesn't burn, can He not talk through anyone, use any vessel that He decides to use? And that's the case here. We see Nebuzaradan speaking the word of the Lord as Jeremiah later recognizes in writing this down. So Nebuzaradan gives uh, gives Jeremiah freedom. But Jeremiah recognizes my freedom is from the Lord. I am free in the Lord. Then he gave Jeremiah rations and a gift. Which I think is interesting. A ration and a gift. What was the gift? Well, we don't know. I personally think it may be one of those I heart Nebuchadnezzar bumper stickers or you know, a little keychain with that. The gift, the real gift, was his freedom. Jeremiah is free. Listen, in tenuous times, don't forget this. You are free. You are a free people. And at the risk of sounding unpatriotic, and I don't mean to, your freedom was not given to you by the founding fathers. Not if you're in Jesus. Your freedom is from Christ. Your freedom is from the Lord. We have a liberty that no government can regulate. A freedom that no man can restrict. We are free in Christ. We are not permitted as Christians. We are free 
in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, Isaiah 61, again, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what Jesus does. If you have never heard this before, listen carefully. Jesus takes the full weight of the mess of sin that culminates in a smoldering, burning life. He takes all of that and He offers you freedom. Freedom from the mess that you're in right now. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's your paycheck, by the way. Your paycheck for sinning in the world. Well, I'm free to do whatever I want. I can sin however I want because I'm free. And you're going to pay for it. Your paycheck is death. Romans 6.23 But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And surely the choice to sin is like an I heart Nebuchadnezzar bumper sticker compared to the freedom that we have in Christ. There's no comparison. I wish that I wish and I pray often that we could get hold of people in the world long enough for them to see you are not free outside of Christ. You are bound. You're in chains. You are manacled and you're headed off to exile. But Jesus says, be free in me. Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So, how did Jeremiah use his freedom? In these days when all seemed lost, he's given complete freedom. How does he use it? Verse 6 tells us he went to Mizpah, to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, and stayed with him among the people who were left in the land. I love that. Jeremiah uses his freedom to stay among God's people. To remain there. He chose the people of the Lord. The poor, pathetic, weak, beaten, sorrowful people, but they were God's people still in the land of Judah. They needed Him. And I think He needed them as well. Even if it was just to hang in there together. You know, to hang on through the tough times. And I think it's the same for us. Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Serve one another. That's the greatest use of your godly freedom is to serve other believers in Christ Jesus. And to bring the gospel to a lost world. Revelation 3.8 says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. That's freedom. He says, because you have a little power, but have kept my word and have not denied my name. I don't know if you feel this way, but there are times where I look out at our fellowship and And I wonder, how will little us with little power really make the kind of impact in this world that I would like to make? How how can we do that from a barn on North Whidbey Island? How are we really going to touch and change and alter the world? How are we going to prepare the world for the coming of the kingdom? How are we going to be of use to the Lord? And so I think about that. Little us with little power. How can we hold back the deception and the darkness of this world? And then I look out at you and I see you keeping His Word. And I I see you not denying His name. And I remember that He has put before us an open door that no one can shut. It's staggering. Our mission team back from the Philippines and we were uh, praying and talking with Brian and Ruth Young last night a little bit even about this. And I was thinking, how marvelous. I remember a decade ago when, when we first started the bridge 
And I heard about another church in town that was sending a group of teenagers uh, on an international mission trip. And I thought, I wonder if we're ever going to have a chance to do something like that, you know, as a church. There's like 20 of us, Heather, and you're in her living room there. And I wonder if we're ever going to do something, you know, more than just what's happening here. And Jake is just back with our teens. And not only having gone on an international mission trip, you know, woohoo, that's great, but having gone to a church with whom we have developed relationship and fellowship and a closeness to all the way across the Pacific. The church where the people know us as we come now and look for us to be there and are excited and encouraged by that even as we are encouraged in that relationship. It's marvelous. How can one little church in a barn on Whidbey Island have the impact? Because we're free in Christ. Because there is not a closed door in front of us, but an open one. And we are free to do what God has prepared for us to do. Verse 7 going on. We only have three and a half more chapters. Now, all the commanders of the forces that were in the field, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, over the land. And that he had put him in charge of the men, women, children, those of the poorest of the land, who had not been exiled to Babylon. So they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, along with Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and Yohanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumet, and the sons of Ephi, the Netophathite, and Jetzaniah, the son of the Maacathite, of course, with the Megabytes and the Gigabytes. They were all there. Verse 9, Then Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swore to them, and to their men, saying, Do not be afraid of serving the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Stay in the land, serve the king of Babylon, that it may go well with you. As for me, behold, I'm going to stay at Mizpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your storage vessels and live in your cities that you have taken over. Likewise, also also all the Jews who are in Moab... And among the sons of Ammon and in Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Edom, that's Jordan today, all the Jews who were there and in all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant for Judah and that he had appointed over them Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. And then all the Jews returned from all the places to which they had been driven away. And they came to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and gathered in wine and summer fruit in great abundance. Gedaliah is right on. This, this Gedaliah set up as governor is right on. He tells the people, look, we're here now, so gather in your vineyards, gather in your wine, put it in the barrels, go out, get the oil, you know, crush the olives, let's, let's take care of the land that the Lord has given us, we'll serve the Chaldeans, I'll stand before them, before you, before them, and we'll live here. And this is a good thing. And we see that it was. Now again, some scholars look at this and they say, these people were living in rebellion because they were supposed to be in Babylon. Not so. What we see happen here, under the leadership of Gedaliah, is we see the land fulfilling prophecy. Listen to this, Jeremiah 27 verse 11. The Lord said, But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord. And they will till it and dwell in it. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks back. Accept his will and you will till. Right? Just accept the will of the Lord for your life and there will be fruit and there will be summer wine and there will be the oil. Bring this all in. I'm amazed. I look at verse 10 and if we didn't know the context of this, 
gathering wine and summer fruit and oil and live in your cities. Man, that sounds like a summer party. That sounds great. That sounds like a blessed people. And it is, so long as they are in subjection to Nebuchadnezzar, which was at this time God's will for them. At Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. And Gedalia says, I'm going to live here at watchtower. And I will stand between you and the Babylonians. And he would make the tribute that was necessary and keep them in subjection to the will of Nebuchadnezzar and the people could live in the land. Gedalia was a good guy. He was a worthy governor. Nebuchadnezzar chose him because he was honestly fed up with the kings of Judah. So he says, Gedalia, Gedalia, he's my man. If he can't do it, no one can. But there was a problem. Second story. First story is Jeremiah's freedom. Jeremiah's liberty. Second story, Gedaliah's gullibility. Watch this, verse 13. Now Yohanan, the son of Korea, and I believe that's North Korea, but I'm not sure, and all the commanders of the forces that were in the field came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Are you well aware that Baalus, the king of the sons of Ammon, has sent Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. Then Yohanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah in Mizpah, saying, Let me go and kill Ishmael, the son of Netaniah. And not a man will know. Why should he take your life so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Yohanan, the son of Korea, Do not do this thing, for you are telling a lie about Ishmael. It's not true. I don't don't believe it. I don't buy it that there's an assassin among us. Well, these were tenuous days at best. And what was required, what was called for in times like those, I believe in times like these, is sound and thoughtful leadership. Not the brutal kind, like Johanan was suggesting, not that people should be just murdered and taken out, but at least a little shrewd discernment. And that's what Gedalia lacked. As a governor, verse 1, in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, note that this Ishmael was from David's line. And he was one of the chief officers of the king, that is, King, Nebu- uh, king Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. So he, along with ten men, came to Mizpah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and while they were eating bread together there in Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and ten men who were with him arose and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. It was a bloodbath. And in those lawless post-Judaic days, days it, it was not enough to be a good leader. Gedaliah was a good leader, but he was too trusting. They needed someone who was wise and discerning in those times. And we need him today. We need wise leadership today. We need discernment today like never before. I probably said that ten years ago. I mean it far more now than I did back then. We need discernment in leadership. People who are taking it to the Lord. People who are wise in their understanding. Who are shrewd. Who are intelligent in thought. Matthew 10.16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Friday morning, 
Cheryl looks out of our kitchen window, and standing there in our front yard was a ram. This is not a usual thing. Dear, yes. But there was a sheep, all hairy and, and had the big old, you know, ram horns, just sitting there. I mean, totally clueless, just in the middle of our driveway, standing there. And Cheryl opens the door and he looks at her. And he walked a little over here, and he walked a little. It, it was like he's going, I have no idea where I am. I am in a bad way here. Someone pulled the wool over my eyes. You know, it was just, it was not a good, he's standing there and Cheryl comes and she gets me and I'm looking out going, this is unbelievable. We, you know, we grew up in Southern California. You go to the zoo to see this kind of thing. You know, you, you don't see this in your front yard. We find out it was, it belonged to one of our neighbors and just somehow got out or lost or something and is just wandering. That's like us. <laughs> I send you out as sheep. And we are like that, gang. In life, this is why people watch Dr. Phil. They don't know what to do. No, let's try that channel. No, that's not good. i got to read this book. Looking for something to bring wisdom and discernment, and we don't have it. And Jesus says to His followers, you're sheep in the midst of wolves. What do we do, Lord? Be shrewd. Be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Paul said in Romans 16, 19, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Gone are the days when Jesus' people can assume our culture gives us the benefit of the doubt. Gone are the days when we can naively believe that we are protected by law. Gone are the days that we can assume if we just play nice with everybody else, maybe they'll all come back to church. Those days are behind us, gang. And Jesus said in Luke 16, 8, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. And I hear that and I think, okay, Lord, so how do we develop this kind of discernment? So that we're not like... Gedalia. So we're not gullible like him and just think, oh no, everybody's fine, everything's good, we don't have to worry about a thing. What do we do? Do, do we become like the world? Learning effective business. The seven habits of highly effective people. If we all would just study that and develop those seven habits. I read that book. I am no more effective now than I was then. <laughs> develop business strategies and, and techniques that we learn from the sons of this age. Is that, is that what you want us to do, Lord? You know, that may be fine for business, but it falls way short in the spirit realm. In the world that we are called to live in. And I'm so excited. I've been watching. And I am seeing a growing number of people hungering for discernment. Hungering for wisdom. Desiring to develop this, this spiritual shrewdness that comes only from the Lord. You know where I see it? I see on Wednesday nights... More people showing up here than I could have imagined. And it's really cool. Because Wednesday nights are, as far as I am concerned, sword training. Rightly dividing, as we talked about this last week. Learning how to rightly divide the word of truth. I remember I've told you before, my son Corey, as a young, as a kid, one time said, Dad, the Bible's just so big and so overwhelming, I don't know how to navigate it. He didn't use the word navigate. (laughs) 
I wonder how to get through it. And it was daunting to him. And he said that, and I remember thinking at the time, how daunting is this book for so many Christians? And yet we are called to rightly divide, to accurately handle the word of truth. Wednesday night is sword training. Chuck Smith said in his book, Living Water, without the solid teaching of the word of God, believers remain in a state of arrested spiritual development. You give your life to the Lord, you begin to grow, and then you say, I got enough of this Bible stuff, besides it's too hard for me to fully understand anyway, so you stop, and that's as far as you get spiritually. And you look around and you see these other people. Why does he seem to know the Lord? Why does she seem to walk with the Lord? You are in the state of arrested spiritual development. How do you break out of that? Sword training. Sword training. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why was it that everyone in Judah went down except for Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah had the word of the Lord. And no one else was paying attention. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Again, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Thursdays. Thursdays. Not sword training, but what's going on here in the barn? Spirit training. And I was asked this morning... um, it's about the second or third time I've been asked, can anybody show up for that Thursday prayer thing or does, can it just be shepherds? And Well, we talked about that last week, right? Shepherds are just people, right? There's no difference. Well, what if I don't have a prayer need? Can I come on Thursday night? Yes. Come and pray. Because marvelous things are happening. God is speaking. We are hearing from Him and we're learning how to hear from Him. And so we just pray. It's all we do on Thursday night. You don't have to even bring a Bible. You don't have to come ready to worship. We just sit down, gather up, get in a circle and start to pray. We had a huge group there this last week. Just praying. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 tells us what comes of prayer because it tells us what the nature of the Holy Spirit is. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And if you want any of that, the Holy Spirit will bring it. And has been bringing it on Thursday nights in prayer. We have a growing number of people involved in small groups. Rick, this sounds like you just want us to be involved in these programs. No, I'm not. I'm saying these are some simple things that are already going on that you can connect in to become more equipped with the Word of God and truly learn how to connect with the Father in prayer. How to listen and hear His voice. It's not as hard as you might think. Jesus said, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But don't kid yourselves, discernment never comes by default. You don't just become discerning. It comes through sword sword training. It comes through spirit training. It comes from a relationship that is active and growing in the Lord. And I know some people would say, Honestly, Rick, I'm just too busy to add another night or two into my schedule. And I'm sure Gedalia was a busy man too. I'm sure he had too much going on to worry about whether or not there was an assassin in the midst. Listen, if you are too busy to seek the Lord in these last days, you are too busy. And as Brian Regan once said, maybe I'll loosen up your schedule. The days are on us when I believe we cannot afford to be lacking in wisdom and discernment. 
You will not get wisdom and discernment from the world. You will not get it from all the best training and teaching that's out there. You will get it from the Word of God. You will get it from being in connection with His Holy Spirit in prayer. So don't get more gullible. Get more biblical. Get more spiritual. Now, that's Gedalia's story. He's dead. So we have Jeremiah's liberty, Gedalia's gullibility, suddenly tenuous times become turbulent times as we step into story number three, Ishmael's brutality. Verse four of, where are we? Chapter 41. Yeah. Now it happened on the next day after the killing of Gedalia that when no one knew about it, that 80 men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria with their beards shaved off and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed. These guys are in mourning over what has happened in the land. Having grain offerings and incense offerings in their hands to bring to the house of the Lord. There is no house of the Lord. The temple's gone. But the people were still coming up to the temple mount as a place of worship. So that's why they're heading up there. And we're told that Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. And as he met them, he said, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And yet it turned out that as soon as they came inside the city, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and the men that were with him slaughtered them and cast them into the cistern. But ten men were found among them, And they said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat and barley and oil and honey hidden in the field. So he refrained and did not put them to death along with their companions. Now as for the cistern where Ishmael had cast all the corpses of the men whom he had struck down because of Gedaliah, it was the one that King Asa had built on account of Baasha, the king of Israel. That's another story you can read another time, 1 Kings 15. Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, filled it with the slain. Seventy corpses in a cistern. It was a bloodbath. And then Ishmael took captive all the remnant of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had put under the charge of Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Thus Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, took them captive and proceeded to cross over. Note this, to the sons of Ammon. Ishmael's brutality. Ishmael was of the royal line of David, as I said before, a previous officer in the court of Zedekiah. And there's a lot of political intrigue going on in the background. We don't really have time to get into, but just note, this guy served King Zedekiah. Judah, under King Zedekiah, had an alignment with Ammon and with Tyre against Babylon. They had had secret meetings, and I believe it was five... 98 B.C., there was a secret meeting of these three countries got together and tried to compare notes to see how they could put off Babylon. Well, now Judah's been destroyed. And this Ishmael of Zedekiah's court is connected to the king of Ammon, whose name is Baalus. I know there's a lot of names and stuff going on here. But they've got this alignment. So Ishmael is thinking, I will not be under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. I won't put up with it. This Gedalia is serving Nebuchadnezzar. I'm taking him out. So he takes him out. These guys are coming because they want to worship. I'm taking him out. We need to go to Ammon. We need to run to the Ammonites. And so he starts dragging off this whole company of people up to the land of Ammon, northern Jordan, to a place filled with Israel's ancient rivals and enemies. Well, that's good thinking. I read that story and I'm going, okay, Lord... As bloody, so you know, it'd be a great movie. But what can we take out of this? 
And it may almost be absurd to make comparisons between this monstrous madman and our day to day. But maybe the bloody distinction is that much more vivid. Listen, this is how you get things done in the flesh. Ishmael had a purpose, and that was to fight back and beat back against Babylon. And so in the flesh, this is how you do it. This is the game you play. Gedalia, he was a good guy who didn't see the enemy coming. Ishmael was filled with guile, deceit, and that's how the enemy works. And that's how the flesh works. The weapons of the flesh are underhanded, deceitful, conniving, self-serving, compared to the weapons of the Spirit, which are prayer and the Word of God. And those are the two options there. And we can try and fight with the weapons of the flesh, but Paul said, and listen, brothers and sisters, because he's speaking to Christians here, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul would say one of the stupidest things a Christian can do is pursue the flesh when you began in the Spirit. If you call yourself a Christian, you know what that means you are? You are born again by the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Born of the Spirit. To spiritual things, to a spiritual mindset, to spiritual behavior, to spiritual conversation with the Lord, to a spiritual way of looking at the world that is different. And yet so many of us Christians, we get saved in the Spirit and then we live in the flesh. And we find joy in the Spirit and freedom there. Remember, there's liberty in the Spirit. And then we slide back and go, yeah, but there's some good stuff going on in the flesh. And I can work the flesh. And where the flesh is, there is carnage. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We're called to spiritual living. And it's not pie-in-the-sky, empty-headed religion. It is shrewd, informed wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Underscore that. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit, and they are life. Ishmael wanted to lead the remnant in the direction of the flesh. Let's go to Ammon. Ammon is a picture of the flesh. Boring, fighting, brutal. That's where we're going. That's what Ishmael's lead was in all of his brutality. Verse 11 continues on. But Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, had done. So they took all the men and they went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and they found him by the great pool that is in Gabeon. Now as soon as all the people who were with Ishmael saw Yohanan, the son of Korea, when the, the, and the commanders of the forces that were with him, they were glad. And so all the people whom Ishmael had taken captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Yohanan, the son of Korea. But Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, escaped from Yohanan with eight men and went to the sons of Ammon. And that kind of bothers me. That's kind of a Mr. Potter moment there. You know, Mr. Mr. Potter in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. He gets off scot-free at the end of the movie. You know that. He doesn't get busted. He doesn't go to jail. He steals $8,000 from George really bothers me. 
<laughs> and Ishmael gets off scot-free. We never hear about him again. He comes out of the pages of Scripture, off into history somewhere. We don't know anything else about him. But we're told in verse 16, Then Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, took from Mizpah all the remnant of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Netaniah. After he had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. That is, the men who were soldiers, and the women, and the children, and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gabeon. And I think, yes! Good! Finally! Finally we have a leader who has a shrewd character in this Yohanan. Finally someone stands up who can fight, but who is also wise. Unlike Gedaliah, who was gullible. Finally we have a leader who has a genuine concern for the people, unlike Ishmael, who just wanted to head to Ammon. <laughs> but there's a chink in Yohanan's armor. Verse 17, And they went and stayed in Garuth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem, in order to proceed into Egypt. Well, because of the Chaldeans, verse 18, for they were afraid of them, since Ishmael the son of Netaniah had struck down Gedaliah, or Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Story number four, last one. Yohanan's audacity. Yohanan's audacity. I, I almost call this Yohanan's southern hospitality. Because he wants to take the people south into Egypt. He has in his mind, we're going back to Egypt. He figures it's their only survival. He's thinking, Yohanan, if we stay in the land, Babylon's going to come and crush us again. We can't do that. We've got to get out of here. We've got to hide out. Let's go to Egypt. Bible students, what is Egypt a picture of? The world. The world. It's always a picture of the world in Scripture when you read about, when you see Egypt. Ammon's a picture of the flesh and the brutality. Egypt is a picture of the world, the way the world does things. Where's Jeremiah in all of this? Jeremiah is in the midst of his people. Jeremiah was with them, most likely as they were being drug off toward Ammon. Jeremiah is with them now at Bethlehem, or just near Bethlehem, as this Yohanan is saying, we've got to go to Egypt. But let's cut him some slack just for a moment. Verse 1 of chapter 42, Then all the commanders of their forces, Yohanan, the son of Korea, and Jetsaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both small and great, approached. And they said to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is, for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many. And as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Well, that sounds good. That sounds humble. That sounds open-minded. It sounds, well, it sounds submitted but it's a sham. Verse 4, Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words, and I will tell you the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I will not keep back a word from you. And then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send to us. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us and we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God. How many times are they going to have to say it? We'll listen to His voice. You go, Jeremiah, talk to Him, find it out. 
It's a sham because Yohanan and his commanders are fine with the idea of God's will as long as it aligns with their will. What I think they believe they would get is, let's send off Jeremiah to pray. He'll come back and say, yeah, you got to get out of here. And then we got God's backing to do what we want to do in the first place, to go down to Egypt. I'm sure none of you ever do that. Now at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Why ten days? Well, if you're into biblical numerology, ten is the number of the law. Ten Commandments. It's, a tender, it's the number of God's authority in Scripture when it comes up, typically having to do with the authority of God. But I think more simply, it may simply have been that God was allowing them ten days to cool their jets. Ten days to sit down, think about what you're doing, relax, and don't rush into anything. I've said this before, when you don't know what to do, what should you do? Nothing. It's so simple. I don't know what to do. I'm going this way. Why? You don't know what to do. I don't know what the Lord's will is, but we're going to plow down. Why? You haven't heard yet. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Wait. He'll tell you. So Jeremiah goes away, comes back. Ten days later, verse 8 picks it up. Then he called for Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces that were with him, and for all the people, both small and great. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to, pre- to present your petition before him. If you, Here's God's answer. If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. And I will plant you and not uproot you. For I will relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you are now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord. For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. I will also show you compassion so that he, Nebuchadnezzar, will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. But if you are going to say, we will not stay in this land... So as not to listen to the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the sound of trumpet or hunger for bread. We will stay there. Then in that case, listen to the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword, which you are afraid of, will overtake you in the land of Egypt. And the famine about which you are so anxious, will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and you will die there. God's on to them. Amazing. Johanna must be thinking, how does Jeremiah know I want to go to Egypt? How does he figure this out? God totally calls him out. I love it. God says, here's my will for you, but if you're not going to listen to my will, which by the way, I already know you don't want to listen to my will, then here's what is going to happen to you. He tags them. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt and reside there will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I am going to bring on them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you will become a curse and an object of horror and imprecation and a reproach, and you will see this place no more. That's the word from the Lord in response to their prayer. 
Remember their prayer where they said, we will listen to whatever the Lord says. Well, then Jeremiah throws in his own two cents worth. Verse 19, he says, The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah. Do not go into Egypt. You should clearly understand that today I have testified against you. For you have only deceived yourselves. For it is you who sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God. And whatever the Lord our God says, tell us so and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the Lord your God, even in whatever He has sent me to tell you. Therefore, you should now clearly understand that you will die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence in the place where you wish to go and reside. But as soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is all these words, Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Yohanan the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men, they said to Jeremiah, You're telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt and reside there, but Baruch the son of Neriah is inciting you against us to give us over to the hand of the Chaldeans so they'll put us to death or exile us to Babylon. What are they saying? They're saying, my God wouldn't tell us not to go into Egypt. My God would tell me to go to Egypt. Do you ever hear that kind of talk? My Jesus wouldn't say that. My Jesus wouldn't be intolerant. My Jesus is not a bigot. My Jesus, well, does things my way. It's the kind of Jesus a lot of people want to believe in. A Jesus who just does what they tell Him to do. But that's not this Jesus. That is not this God. Verse 4 says, So Yohanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. Yohanan the son of Korea and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. The men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, every person Nebuchadnezzar left uh, with Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah, and they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they went as far as Takapankes. It's my best pronunciation of that Egyptian city. The Egyptian city, Takapankes, means you will fill hands with pity. That's what the city name is. In other words, Egypt will take pity on us. Egypt will look after us. They'll take care of us. And so it only took 500 years for a leader in Israel to manage to drag his people back to the land of Egypt. The first place of their captivity. The place God rescued them from. The place they celebrated Passover every year to remember how God rescued us, delivered us from Egypt. They're back. They're back. Egypt is a picture of the world. Have you ever been freed from some sin only to go back to it because you know it's comfortable? I know it's wrong, but I'm used to it. Go back to that way of thinking. Back to that old behavior. Back to the bottle. Back to whatever it was that you did before. Oh, I came to Christ and I liked the freedom for a while, but eventually it was too free. So I had to go back to captivity. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, 
Don't do things the way the world does things. Don't rush back to be like the world. Don't look like the world. You realize in the study of Scripture how radically different Jesus' people should look from the way the world looks? Wherever it is that you are, whether it's in business, whether it's in government, whether it's in service industry, whether it's among friends or in culture or in society or at the grocery store at home, whatever, you should not look like the world. Not do things like the world. If it looks like the world, it's Egypt. And he says, don't be conformed to that. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. By the way, how did it work out for these Jews who went back into Egypt? We'll see that on Wednesday night. Let me close with this. You've been really attentive. In the post-Judaic world of the 6th century B.C., when everything seemed lost, when Jeremiah himself wrote, cried out, even your prophets lack a vision. What was it the people needed? They needed a vision. They needed something to sustain them through tenuous and turbulent times. They needed somewhere that they knew they were headed. And they had it. And marvelously, I mean, it came through other prophets as well, but it came through the centerpiece of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And I will put my law, verse 33, within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They had a vision, but they would not listen to it. And so you've got some off in captivity in Babylon, the majority, and you've got this remnant now living in Egypt where they will be messed up. In this world in which we live, not a post-Christian world, but certainly one that feels that way sometimes. Certainly we live in tenuous times, if not turbulent. We need a vision. We have one. Revelation 22.20 tells us he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our vision. He's coming. And everything we do in our lives needs to be done with that vision in mind. God is calling us to be in alignment with His coming, which is near and soon. And in these last days... The godly vision that he's offered us that's totally different from Gedalia's gullibility or Ishmael's brutality or Yohanan's audacity. The vision that he's given us is Jeremiah's liberty. Freedom to walk in Christ. Freedom to connect ourselves to him. As Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery.